Inquisitive is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. My name is David Sparks, and my favorite album is Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. So I'm really happy um, that you picked this. One of the reasons that I, I wanted to have you on the show is because I know that you're a big jazz fan, right? That's like a, yeah. a, a big part of your musical taste is jazz. Um, yeah. What What about jazz music is so, like it speaks to you so much? I, You know, I was thinking about this and I think, because I was a musician growing up, I, I played in a lot of bands and played uh, piano and saxophone and um, I think jazz was pushing my buttons because jazz really is kind of music for nerds. Um, uh, when you get into it, um, the chord patterns are more complex. It's got more math, I guess would be one way to put it. Um, so I really was fascinated by the complexity of it and, you know, the difficulty of playing it. And that also, I just like the sound of it. So uh, since I was a little kid, I grew up in a house that, my my parents were like um the closest thing to jazz they liked was Nat King Cole but my my dad was a big like country music fan and like you know Johnny Cash and that stuff never never spoke to me at all and um and so when I was little I found my way into swing music and and very quickly progressed to bebop like 1950s bebop and my whole life that's been a passion of mine so what about this album? What about Kind of Blue that makes it what you would call to be your favorite album? Um, you know, it just it just touches me. I can't really put it that way. It's not a fast album. Um, some people say it kind of blues, you know, the album that uh that you know, when you're with your lady, that's the album you play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know how to put that delicately, but anyway, uh, but it's not that, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't even think about stuff like that, but it just, it just, I don't know. Uh, uh, it, I guess, you know, older now and, and understanding the, the theory of the music, I have a better idea of why the album um, works so well, because, you know, Miles Davis is an interesting guy. I, I kind of equate him when I was prepping for this, I started thinking about him and, He's similar to Steve Jobs in a way that um, he's always moving forward. I mean, Miles was started out in the bebop movement. I mean, he played with Charlie Parker and then, but he didn't stay there. You know, like some artists get really good at one type of music and they play it their whole life. In fact, one of the key reasons, uh, the key players in this album, Bill Evans was, was like that, you know, he played basically the same kind of music his entire life. Uh, but Miles kept moving forward. He went from bebop to post-bop, and then the cool jazz movement, he was one of the leaders in that. And then later he went on to fusion and funk and even rock. I mean, he played with Prince, you know. So um, the guy was always changing, and, um, and you know, he also personally he had a lot of his own demons, and he had an interesting life. But the... Um, but this album itself was really the first dip into modal jazz and where jazz before was very complex, like I was talking about and very complicated chord and things. Uh, Bill Evans had this idea of a modal type of jazz and modal music goes back to like the middle ages and it's built around scales and progressions. And, and so they would have, this album was made as a kind of a conceptual, 
um, experiment hmm. where they would play different modes of music and they didn't even have melodies written down for some of these songs. They would just kind of go into the studio and record. And it's just such a different sound that it really, it really gets you. I mean, that, that first, the first song on the album is called So What? And, um, if you just op- listen to the opening, you don't even know what you're getting into because they do some modes and then the bass comes in, boom, 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 boom. You know, it, it comes in with this weird sound that you've never heard before. And then they just kind of fall into this, this, this groove or so what, which is a, a phrase that album uh, that Miles used to say all the time. And you can almost hear him saying it with the way they play the music. I, I don't know. I'm getting hippie on you, Mike. But that's what I want, though. Like, this is all about like how it makes you feel, and and because I think that's the most important part of music yeah. is how it makes you feel, it, whether you're playing it or or listening to it. Like, so this is the first time uh, that I've ever listened to this album. Like, I'm sure I've heard stuff from this album. You know, I'm sure I've heard yeah. parts or entire songs just throughout my life because it is such a. a important album in music like i know the name of it i know all about it you know that kind of thing i've heard about it um but this is the first time i've really taken time to actually sit and listen to it properly and i don't this like i felt so many different things listening to it like i i felt kind of relaxed um but then as i was listening to it i didn't didn't really recognize what had happened but like it started to make me feel sad like it was really interesting because it's just music, right? You know, like a lot of the, yeah. the music that I listen to has lyrics and, and that's the kind of person that I am. But they seem to really be telling some kind of story because all I know is my feelings were changing as I was listening today. And whenever I feel tense, I listen to this and it always kind of takes the edge off. And one of the things about this album is they really did kind of, and this was in 1959, but they really did try to write it. It, it felt like they wrote it as a suite you know, the the way things blend together. And that's something that hadn't really been done. I know the Beatles did it later and, and, you know, more modern artists now try to make an album as a complete project. But back then this was kind of a new thing. It wasn't just a collection of songs. This is the idea that all of the music links together. Like it just plays, you know, gapless playback yeah. kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing fast on it. That's one of the things that is, I think sometimes I complain, how come they didn't do an up-tempo song? And uh, I don't think that's what they were going for here. This whole thing was the exploration of modal music. And um, I don't know, it just really hits me. I mean, the the guy who was really kind of behind it, you know, Miles collected people in, in essence. He would find somebody that was doing something interesting. And there's all these stories about how Miles Davis would call Bill Evans. And Bill Evans played the piano on most of the tracks on this album and um, also, um, you know, wrote a lot of the music. And But before that, Miles and, and Bill Evans had played together. And Miles would call him and say, well, just lay the phone on your piano and just play for me. You know, he'd be off on a gig somewhere and he'd just want to hear Bill's modal music. And so... You could tell Miles was thinking, this is something I want to get involved with, and and he did. So th- this modal music that you're talking about, this style of music, did he ever go any further with it, or was kind of Blue the only experiment in that style? Well, I mean, he was always in motion. So, you know, modal, this was really the big album where he did it. Uh, Bill Evans continued to experiment with it throughout his life. Uh, the next one of the next major albums Miles did was one called Birth of the Cool, and 
and up until that time, there had been kind of, you know, they also call it East Coast, West Coast jazz, but, you know, it's really bebop and cool jazz. And so bebop was a, a reaction to the swing music. So, you know, like in the 40s and early 50s, swing music got very popular. And there were all these black musicians who really were the people who who created this this form of music. I mean, it came out of New Orleans and Chicago, and you know, there's a whole kind of lineage to it. But then it got very quickly adopted, you know, by white America, and and a lot of these artists felt like they kind of got left in the dust on it. And I know there, I don't want to, I don't know what people are going to think about this, but you know, I've seen like interviews and recordings of a lot of these guys saying, you know, we wanted to make it harder to copy our music. <laughs> and um, so they just started going crazy. And if you listen to the, the original bebop and like Charlie Parker was one of the innovators in this, they played so many notes, you know, these guys were just flying and they had this, this type of music that it, it was just crazy. And it's great. I, in fact, it's one of the first types of music that I really you know latched onto. But then, you know, later they said, well, let's slow it down and let's have a, a jazz form that is a little cooler, you know, so it's not moving as fast. Now it was cool jazz. And, and I feel like this modal music kind of blue was one of the first kind of dips in that direction. Cause if you listen to this album, the, uh, the solos are not as crazy as they would be in a traditional bebop. I don't know if he, he really gets recognition for being an innovator in the cool jazz movement, because a lot of that really took place on the West coast with guys like Jerry Mulligan and Dave Brubeck and some of those others. But um, but then Miles made another album called Birth of the Cool. In fact, I believe Jerry Mulligan played on that album. And um, it was not a commercial success like Kind of Blue was. And I think it was just kind of a little bit ahead of its time. But in hindsight, that was really the beginning of the cool jazz movement. So the long answer to your question is he kind of moved on after this as well. And he didn't really go back and play stuff. Like when I was a kid in the 80s, I mean, this Kind of Blue album was like... I played it like every morning when I woke up, you know, it was like my thing. And I so badly wanted to hear it live. And Miles by then was playing kind of this funk rock thing. And uh, I'd go see him play and it would make me mad because he would only play the new stuff. Uh, he never really went back and played the old stuff. So you never got to hear it? Never got to hear it live, yeah. But how how many times have you seen him? Uh, Probably two or three times. Right. You know, I was, I was in... Um, some honor bands, you know, that we got exposed to him. And then the Playboy Jazz Festival in L.A. I used to go to every year. And he'd come out, like, towards, you know, he he was a weird guy in a lot of ways. And, like, he would, they, he was he was playing with, like, kind of a funk band at the time. And he would come, he had this trumpet that was laminated red. But he would come out and he would turn his back to the audience for the whole gig and face the drums. I mean, I don't know where he was at at that point, you know. But, um, that's that's, that's a, a peculiar thing to do, I guess. Yeah, it's a whole other story. I mean, I, it seems to me like there's, an, there's a movie to be made about Miles Davis because he was, you know, like Jobs, he was really innovative and really kind of an amazing gift to music. But on the other side of him, he had a lot of issues, you know, so that would make a good subject. So do you remember where you were when you first heard this album? Uh, no, I was a kid. I mean, I was probably 10 years old. But you said that you played it every day. Oh, yeah. Was it like a ritual? Yeah, I had like a record, you know, record player. At the time, I had one in my room, and I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd do 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 ba do ba do ba you know, that bass line. It's like mm -hmm. burned into me. It's just a great way to, I don't know, 
I liked it. There's so much great music on this album. Um, you know, the most popular track is So What, the first track. And you'll, I'm sure you've heard that one before. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorites is is Blue and Green. And um, I believe that's the third track. And it starts out with these amazing chord progressions from Bill Evans. And then Miles plays this note on the trumpet, and I think it's the best note a trumpet has ever played. <laughs> plays it with a Harmon mute, and he comes in, and it's just so expressive, and it's a single note. And um, and blue and green, like I said, it, you know, for the music nerd in me, the the modes, and I don't know, that's probably the song that made you sad, but I just I love that song. And, and it was also interesting, like not only did he collect interesting types of music, he he collected interesting people. Um, uh, and in contrasting people, like he had two saxophonists on this album, John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley. And uh, two, these guys are recognized as two of the best people that have ever played the instrument. Uh, John Coltrane, perhaps, is the best. Um, and um, But they played so differently. Cannonball Adderley was like this outgoing guy. And it's like when he played, you could hear the joy in his music. Like, And I have a lot of his albums, and he's just really fun whereas John Coltrane um the best way to, to to explain it is he played melancholy I mean when he played a solo it sounded melancholy and and I mean that as a compliment it's yeah. hard to explain but he had these two different styles and on some tracks John Coltrane plays a solo and others Adderley plays a solo and you can you can feel the difference I mean it's just an amazing group of people one of the things that I found uh, interesting and kind of different, and you can tell me if this is just something because I don't know a lot of, I don't know or listen to a lot of jazz, is the amount of tracks and the length of them. So there are five tracks on this album, and they kind of tend to, with one exception, be about nine minutes long a piece. Yeah, is that normal? Yeah, it is. So it's like short, short track list, but long tracks. And and jazz music, a lot of times, I mean the whole one of the big things of it, you know, the, you don't have so much singing, although there are some great jazz albums with singing, but a lot of it's just about soloing. So they'll have a song they play and then they'll open it up and they'll take turns soloing around the chords or the modes of that song. And then they'll close it out by playing the melody one last time. Um, this album was what they call a first take album. I mean, they went into the studio and, just kind of played around with ideas a bit, but then when they hit the red button, they recorded the song and they moved on. So this is not a highly produced album. Most of this stuff, I think all of these tracks actually are the first take. I mean, a couple times, in fact, if you buy the, uh, on the 50th anniversary, they have a, like a legacy edition where they have a couple false starts and you can hear miles, you know, not happy with the way the song started. But once they got rolling on these, um, they finished them. So the, it, it, this was not something where they spent six months in the studio. I think it took a couple days to record this album. So these are effectively like first takes, you know, in that yeah. idea. Like they basically what we hear is the first time they pretty much completed the song and then they just put it on the tape, ship it. Yep. yep. How can it be so good? <laughs> That's my question too. But I mean, 
these these were extraordinary musicians. Every one of them: Paul Chambers, the bass player; Jimmy Cobb on drums. I mean, these are the kind of the top people in that at the time. And um, and they were. This was very experimental, you know. And 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 they they didn't want to um, take a bunch of takes because things aren't as you know, as you do it over and over again, it becomes uh, cleaner, but it also becomes less um, creative. So they thought, you know, let's just do it in one take. So you've mentioned a lot of people that were on this record, and some of them, like quite a few of them, I know their names. Like, so they're obviously notable musicians, as you say. But yeah, but this is just Miles Davis's name on the album. Like, why? Why does it work out that way? Well, it was his. It was his album. You know, back then these guys would get contracts with the um, labels to make some of the albums, and then their buddies would come in and play on the album for him. Like Cannonball Adderley did many albums himself the same way, where some of these same guys would play in his band, right? And Bill Evans would do a, an album, and you know Jimmy Cobb may come play drums on his album, but this was Miles's baby, and and he really did you know, direct it in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I was, um, you know, I, I'm kind of obsessed with some of this stuff and I was, I was reading an interview of, um, Jimmy Cobb, the drummer about blue and green because that's, so that's, that's the one that really touches me. And, and Billy Cobb was saying, Miles's instruction was, I want you to make floating sounds on the drums. You know, that was his instruction for the song. And, um, and so he did, you know, if you listen to it, it sounds like he's floating. So, so Miles did kind of direct the album. He was a producer on the album and, um, you know, the, the track choice and a lot, he even composed, um, most of the songs or was at least part of it. And, uh, that was his thing, you know, so he did an album and like I said, you know, the other guys would do their own albums later or earlier and have some of the same sidemen in the band. So would they be like contract? musicians like they might get a fee for paying or is it basically just like a barter system like you help me on this one and i'll help you on your next one well, they, you know? they would get they would i think they got paid in fact i'm sure they got paid and yeah. and this was more than that this band toured for a while and you know played this stuff you know they would tour for a while and then they would you know break up and go on to the next thing because th- that that idea is one of my favorite things about swing music um is that it, there seemed to be this, like, you know, with people like the Rat Pack and stuff, like this symbiotic relationship where they all worked together, they all covered each other's songs, they all worked on each other's records. And I've yeah. always loved that because it felt, it feels like a a band of people rather than just a band. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, well, there were some very talented people here. John Coltrane went on to have a very successful career and, um, and many... You know, many fine jazz albums are attributed to John Coltrane. Cannonball Adderley um, was as well. I mean, all these guys. I'm not sure how much. Um, I don't know if Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb ever released their own albums. I'm sure they did, but the um, the ba- they were the bass and the drummer. But those guys played on so many albums. I just want to take a quick break here to thank our friends over at Cards Against Humanity for sponsoring this week's episode of Inquisitive. As you know by now, there is nothing more that they like than to play you a few seconds of a 90s pop song and then stop it abruptly like this. Everybody, rock your body. Everybody, rock your body. 
My thanks to Cards Against Humanity for their continued support of this show and to this amazing music. So you mentioned a moment ago uh, Blue and Green is the track that like, maybe touches you the most. Is it possible like, to talk about favorite tracks? I mean, because the, yeah. the way that the music is, is presented, I guess it's a little bit more difficult than a pop album to say, you know, track seven and six are my favorite. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I'll just go through each one briefly. Yeah. Um, the first track is called So What? And this is one uh, a lot of the audience may have heard. I think it was the most popular. So what? So what? You know, so that song has been used in commercials and stuff over the years. But it was very, um, I really like it. I re- what I really like about that song is the way it starts, though. It feels like almost like an orchestra warming up the way it starts. And and that's the introduction to modal jazz as the bass line starts kind of creeping around notes. And um, and another thing I really like about that is the um, the cymbal crash for the... Um, the beginning of the mile solo is it, it, a song. You know, they, they play through the melody once and then they go through the mile solo and, and um, the drummer um, Jimmy Cobb hits the crash cymbal as mile starts, which um, it seems like kind of jarring if for, to my jazz ears. But then when I heard it, it like it was perfect. You know what I mean? It's just like all these little things that happen in the studio um, I read an interview by Jimmy Cobb who said when he did it, he thought that um, Miles was going to stop him because of that crash. But, you know, I'm glad he didn't because it just it just was the right fit. I, I don't know, just little things about that song that I really like. And um, uh, then the second song is Freddie Freeloader. And Freddie Freeloader is actually a person, Freddie, that used to be, when they'd go on the road, he was always trying to get free drinks and get into places. And um, so Miles wrote a song about him. And it's the same thing. It talks to you. You know, the, the melody is, da, da, you know, you can hear him say Freddie, you know. And um, and that's a really, it's a, it's a good song. You know, it's a good second song. Uh, then then comes Blue and Green, which, like I said earlier, is, I don't know, the way that song starts just just knocks me right in the nose. And it's it's these chord progressions that, that um, Bill Evans goes through. And I, I'm a big Bill Evans fan too. And you know, like, I was glad that Bill Evans didn't move on to different music because we have this rich assortment of albums he made over the years with this type of music. But, but he 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 starts in with these amazing chords, and then Miles comes in with this note on that Harmon mute. He was kind of famous at the time. He played a Harmon mute, and he would push it really close to the mic to kind of like overload it. And um, it's just an amazing note. And like that's that may be my desert. Island track, blue and green. But um, and then the next one is all blues, which is another very popular song. That's the longest track on the one where the and and you know this does have blues roots, so they they stretch out in the solos. This one goes on almost twelve minutes, I think. And then um, Flamenco Sketches is the last track, and that's another kind of experimental one where Bill Evans helped write it. Um, so that's it. There's just five tracks. But, but if, you're, if you're interested in this, I recommend buying the Anniversary Edition um, because it's... Uh, it, it has a lot more tracks and you get to hear some of the kind of starts and stops in the studio. 
and um and it's not that much more money just get that one or actually now if you're on apple music it's no more money at all just just listen to the whole thing that's how i listen to it <laughs> yeah is that nice yeah yeah very much so it was easy um you know, could you even guess how many times you've heard this album? Like, is there even a ballpark figure that you could put on this? Thousands. Like, do you still Thousands. listen to it a lot? Do you still listen to it every day like you used to? No, no, not every day. I mean, I'm, I'm not as big into music as I was when I was a kid because I don't have as much time. But this is uh, this is on my five-star list, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I find myself sometimes when I feel like – um. I feel like I'm over the edge. Sometimes I, I'm like overcommitted or whatever. I, for one reason or another, I feel like I'm losing control. I just like play this album and it pulls me kind of in. And um, so that's the effect it has on me. But it's just, you know, it, in addition to having an emotional effect on me, it's historically an amazing album. I was looking before we, we got on the mic today. I didn't realize this, but in 2003, Rolling Stone rated the 500 greatest albums of all time and made this number 12. So it, this album has a lot of appeal. Yeah. Cause it's interesting, you know, in the Rolling Stone list, I mean, I've looked at it when, when doing some research for other albums, um, I would hazard a guess that there's nothing else like this album, even close to that. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so different, right? So you'd expect it, in theory, like you put it on paper, you'd expect it to have a much narrower, narrower appeal than it than it actually does, I suppose. The guys that, that made the album had no idea it was going to be this popular. I mean, when they made the, the album, they thought it was just another, you know, Miles album. And it was kind of experimental, and they thought that would be fun, but they had no idea it would take off the way it did. And I think probably no other album he ever made took off like this did. Well, I guess maybe that speaks, you know, the way it was recorded. I guess they assumed that it wasn't going to be considered in years and years to come one of the greatest albums of all time because they they recorded it in the way that they did, right? They just one take yeah. and we'll just go for it. But, you know, the back then, that's the way most of the jazz was recorded. They didn't have big budgets or anything. I mean, they they had a day or two in the studio. They had to get the album done and get out of there. Was uh was Miles wealthy? I don't know. Um, I know he had like at times in his life he had money, um, but I also know that like he had a heroin addiction for a while, and um, that has a tendency to cause people to lose their money. You yeah. know, so um, the uh, yeah, I think he was fine. You know, I, I mean, like towards later in life, I know he did he did fine. I mean, he had his fancy red trumpet, and you know. And like um, a friend of mine was telling me how he was on a tour with Miles and Miles had his own like trainer that, you know, toured with them. And, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it, the sad thing about a lot of these 50s jazz guys is they all seem to or a lot of them led very tragic lives. And, you know, you know, they would get into trouble, you know, with drugs or, you know, whatever, even just like car accidents or something. The very few of them had long lives. Do you think, like, for the drugs and stuff, there's something about the music that that turns people that way? Like, it's sadder. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, 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 I do a series on Max Barkey called, you know, Jazz Friday. And I don't do them every Friday, but I do, a, you know, once every month or so. And I try to feature a lot of these old bebop artists. And I don't I don't always write about it, but it is sad So how many of them got into heroin. And, and famously, Charlie Parker, you know, 
died of it essentially and it drastically shortened his life he never he fought it his whole life and he never really won that battle and it was just terrible but he was also one of the primary innovators in that bebop era and i have to think at least on some level some of those guys coming in were thinking that the way he could play all those notes and be so creative was was because of the drugs maybe and that encouraged some of them to try it mm-hmm. i don't know but it, you know if you go back and listen to the recordings when he was clean that's the best stuff he ever made clearly and um or i don't know if it was just i don't know i mean there there's a whole you know shtick about jazz musicians being pot smokers and drug addicts and i still hear about it when i talk to people about jazz <laughs> you know and um i don't know but uh it, it's sad it, it you know i just feel like there was so much more music that we could have had if those guys could have stayed out of the drugs so you mentioned about playing um, in bands and, and stuff like that. What, what do you play? Um, now all I play is the piano. Right. Um, but um, I was really serious about the saxophone for throughout high school and, and some of college. I, I went out and played studio work um, when I was a senior in high school and then for a couple of years into college. It was back in the, the mid-'80s. And it was like, I don't know if you remember, there's a band, you wouldn't remember Mike, because I'm not sure you're even alive. <laughs> but yeah, there's a band called the Honey Drippers at the time. It was kind of a rockabilly sound that suddenly got popular. And I would take my tenor sax out to LA and I'd play studio gigs for uh, bands making their demo tapes. So I'd do like a blues solo on their demo album because they didn't have a regular sax player. I thought I had it all figured out. And then I did some commercial stuff, like literally like, TV commercials and things like that. And I was kind of on a track to become a professional musician and um, and turned around kind of halfway through it because I, I realized it wasn't enough for me. You know, I had really good advice. In fact, there another um, one of my favorite musicians was Bud Shank, who was a guy in the 50s West Coast cool jazz movement. And he was still around when I was going out to the studios. And I finally met, met Bud and, you know, it was like one of my heroes. And and he was, um, you know, he told me he was driving kind of a beat up old car and an amazing musician. And he, he said, look, if you can uh, can't imagine yourself doing anything but playing that saxophone, then you should stay out here and do this. But if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, then you should do that. <laughs> and, right. um, yep. and and um, I thought that was good advice. And I realized that you know I like music a lot, but not an, I didn't want to make it my lifetime. And um, so I really like did a course correction right there. And um, so I, I don't play as much now. I play what I do now is I play the piano and uh, largely play Thelonious Monk piano music, where people can't even tell if I'm hitting the right notes or not. So. <laughs> So the music stuff was a dream, but not the dream. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. And the fact that I was able to discard it like I did tells you that it wasn't the thing for me. Typically when you listen to music, are you a lover of the music or the lyrics? The music. For me, it starts with the music. And do you think that's because of the type of music that you listen to? Yeah, because yeah, I grew up listening to that. But I, I listen to a lot of different types of music. I'm a big fan of some of the alternative rock. Um, I like the Foo Fighters a lot. Um, I liked um, Back in the Day. Um, the one that one thing uh, Mer, um, um, Merlin Mann and I had in common is I liked the Buzzcocks back in the day because they were very melodic for the type of music they were playing. And... Um, 
and you know these days I'm listening to a lot of music that my my daughters influenced me for like I'm a big passenger fan right now I'm going to go see his concert soon so it's um it's not just jazz that appeals to me also I'm also a big fan of um of impressionist classical music you know kind of like the french stuff in the 1800s and 1900s um so I I have a lot of taste for music but a lot of it for me starts with the music not the lyrics how many formats do you own kind of blue in um i well originally i had the the record and then i melted it <laughs> because you know there were records and i had it on top of my desk in my room i remember growing up and oh man i had a desk lamp you know where you yep. could push it and i pushed it aside without thinking when it was on and it was like a couple inches from kind of blue <laughs> and um no. i looked up I looked up in it from my desk. It was like on a shelf next to my desk. And I looked up and the record had this big dip in it. And I'm like, ah, oh, man. So I had to like go mow lawns or something to buy a new copy of it. And then. Do you still um, have that one? No, I don't know what happened no. to it. You know, I've got a bunch of records up in the attic. It may be up there. Um, but then when CDs came, I, I, you know me, I'm a geek. I always want to go to the new thing. Sure. So when CDs showed up, that was. It wasn't on CD immediately, but as soon as it was, I, I got a copy of it on CD, and then that at some point got ripped into my iTunes library, and I've been digital with it ever since. And then uh, it was just a few years ago they released this anniversary edition, and I immediately bought that in digital form. So the um, – yeah, so I, I've owned it in every format I could <laughs> own it in. <laughs> yeah. I have never bought the – I'm sure they've got this in like a super high bitrate version somewhere. Yeah. But I, I don't know necessarily how reliable that would be because, I mean, the way they recorded this stuff, I'm not even sure they've got it. You know, the original recordings are that necessarily high of a bit rate. But the um, and and that's one I can I once you get above 256, I can't tell the difference anyway. Yeah, I agree. Are you proud of this album choice? Like, you know, many people that have been on this series. You know, they they might that most people say yes, but you know, there there are some that are like guilty pleasures and that kind of thing, or like it's a weird album c- compared to some some other selections. But do, is this a cho- an album choice that you're proud of? I you know I think um I, I you know I felt like it was an easy pick. You know, when you told me you wanted to do this, and there's a lot more obscure albums that people have never heard of, and I really considered picking one of those because. I'm thinking, well, they already know about Kind of Blue. Let me talk about something that they haven't heard of yet to you know, push them on to something else. But then I felt like, no, if I'm going to have one shot at this, i got to talk about Kind of Blue. So I guess I'm proud of it. Just to give you that opportunity, what is some of the other stuff that you would recommend? Like if people listen to this and they like it, um, where should they go next? Um, I would start exploring some of the John Coltrane stuff. Like, um, like it, for a slow one, he did an album called Ballads. That's just amazing. I, in fact, when my kids were little, that was the album I used to play in their rooms at night. Rather than you know nursery rhyme music, I would play ballads from John Coltrane. Um, Dave Brubeck did some really interesting stuff. He did one an album called Time Out. This is another pretty popular album, actually, where every track on the album it's another kind of experimental thing doesn't follow the standard um, four beats per measure, you know, time signature, which is almost all music. You know, there's two kinds of music generally. There's four beats per measure, like every rock song is four beats per measure. And if you count to four while you listen to it, you can you can hear it. Um, and then like there's a waltz that has three beats per measure. 
um, which is why you dance the way you do to a waltz. But Brubeck did this album where there was like nine beats per measure or five beats per measure, and it really came out interesting. It's called Time Out. That's a good one I'd listen to. Um, go to maxbarkey.com and just look at the jazz you know, the Jazz Friday post, and there's a ton of good stuff in there. There's a great album where Cannonball Adderley, the guy who plays sax on this album, a live album, um, live at the club, I think it's called. And he like talks a little bit between each song and everybody's having such a great time. And um, I don't know, listening to that album always makes me happy. So there's a lot of good jazz out there. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about it that we've not covered? I I just really... um, I really like this album because like I said earlier, it feels like a suite. And um, if somebody was, you know, unfamiliar with jazz and says, well, I want to kind of get into jazz. This is really the ambassador album. This is the album I'd want you to listen to because it captures kind of the spirit of jazz. It's, it's experimental and it's, you know, it's out there a little bit, but it also makes you feel something. And, um, I hope if you're listening, you listen to this album and you enjoy it. 